Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Mark Thompson. Get woke. God bless you. Good morning. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, MIP is COVID free. Free meaning you don't need a subscription to MIP every day now for a limited time. While we endure this pandemic, we want to make it available to everyone. So wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, MIP is COVID free and available to you and everyone without a subscription. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is the author of The Good News Club. She contributes to the New York Times, American Prospect, The Washington Post, The Nation, The Guardian, The Advocate, Slate, and The Atlantic. She's prolific. In 2014, she was named Person of the Year by the National Civil Liberties Group, Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Her latest book, is the power worshipers inside the dangerous rise of religious nationalism. Happy to have join us now, Catherine Stewart. Catherine, how are you? I'm doing great <laughs> under the circumstances. Uh, thanks so much for having me on your show. 
it's a pleasure to have you. And, and I'm glad to hear that so far you and your loved ones are okay in, in this crisis. Well, we're Correct. our own bread and that's interesting. Uh, it turns out I'm not much of a, a homeschooling mother, but we're making it work. <laughs> so you're not that good at that, huh? <laughs> well, um, I'm doing, we're doing our best. You're doing your best. Okay. <laughs> good enough. We get an A for um, effort. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, say that again? We get an A for effort, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. That's good. We can only do the best we can. Right. Amen. Amen. Um, you recently wrote a piece in the New York Times entitled The Religious Rights Hostility to Science is Crippling Our Coronavirus Response. Uh, tell us a little bit about the influence the religious right is having on Donald Trump's decision in decisions in this crisis. Well, you know, Trump rose to power with the assistance of the Christian right, or what I sometimes call a, a religious nationalist movement. It's a political movement that um, has a lot of infrastructure to sort of put him there. And this is a movement that denies science bashes government and has prioritized loyalty over professional expertise. So my piece for the Times was really about how in this current crisis, we're all, we're all sort of reaping what that movement has sown. And to be clear here, my uh, concern is not with any particular religious creed. My concern with, is with a political movement that often cloaks itself in religious rhetoric and it's used religion as a tool for political power. So there are a number of ways in which this movement bears some responsibility for the current incompetence in our national response. So first and foremost, as I mentioned, the movement promotes an anti-science culture that rejects the evidence of science, rejects expertise and critical thinking. And that obviously has contributed to our inability to address this crisis in an evidence-based fashion. We see that hostility in the battles over evolution uh, that have uh, been a part of this movement for a really long time um, and in a lot of other uh, areas where they bash climate science and things like that. And um, unfortunately, misinformation is rife in some of those hyper-conservative and highly politicized religious communities that sort of put it all in for Trump. They sort of voted for him in disproportionate numbers. Right, right. And I think, I'm sorry, go on. I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I think there's another thing that we need to consider is that this movement has for a long time bashed big government. They're always casting big government as the enemy. And that's a consequence of far right-wing economic and policy, uh, and uh, economic policymaking. The movement has sort of allied itself with sort of big government or sort of that libertarian um, hyper right-wing conservative end of the Republican Party. And so when you've got a collective problem like the coronavirus, uh, and you've got a lot of people who are suffering economically, but you've got this political movement saying, oh, the government should never fund anything and it's sought to hollow out the social safety net, it's really gonna be devastating for a lot of people. You know, this demonization of government has really inhibited our ability to have our government attend to the needs of our most vulnerable members of society. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and fundamentally, and, and specific especially to this pandemic, 
um, some of these folk have been saying, or actually holding, saying, let's continue to hold church services, right? Let's let's um, uh, uh, not participate in the lockdown. I, I, do we have any idea how much the religious right is involved in some of the 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 lockdown protests we're hearing about in the past few days? Well, it's interesting that sort of movement is a very complicated, um, a complicated one. I think political movements are complex by nature, and this one is more p political than most and more complex than most. It's um, there are some of the right wing policy groups that sort of lend support to the movement, and some of them have been involved in these types of protests. But I think you know, to be clear, number one, many religious communities, perhaps most, are reacting responsibly and doing a lot of, I've seen a lot of virtual services online uh, from uh, churches and other houses of worship. Um, but we can't discount the effect of that sort of far right propaganda sphere in fostering uh, misinformation in this movement. And so there's a segment of that world that has been slow to react to the threats of the true threats of the coronavirus, which um, doesn't discriminate again among uh, people, uh, religions, etc. So um, unfortunately, there is a sort of segment of the far right that uh, resisted efforts to um, to uh, social distance. And I think that right. you know we've seen a lot of these sort of far right pastors and even leaders like Jerry Falwell Jr. As, like as late as mid-March, when it was clear to everybody what was happening, he went on Fox News and he cast the coronavirus as a, a threat, like a political threat to his leader. He said the response to the coronavirus was hype and overreaction. He said it was an attempt to get Trump. And other sort of, some other sort of far-right pastors did you know, very much the same. And unfortunately, this has really inhibited our, our ability as a country to spread the kind of information that can help us save lives, flatten the curve, and, and get back to normal. And I also want to say there's this other piece of it that's really important. What we should have been doing in the early days, what our federal government should have been doing in the early days, is resourcing tests, um, helping ho hospitals upscale so they could deal with larger numbers of COVID patients, um, helping source PPE, you know, that personal protective equipment for first responders. And were they doing that in January or February or even March? Where are the tests? I mean, without a sort of ability to upscale testing, it's really hard for us to get a sense of how prevalent the virus is, how to right. do the things like contact tracing and isolating people who have it. And these are the kinds of initiatives that really have historically helped people get on top of these horrible pandemics. And it seems like um, the Trump administration has been sort of passing the buck on, on, on these fronts as well. So is, is the religious right pretty much calling most of the shots in the Trump administration? I mean, we look at the Trump administration and all the, the bumbling it does, but it just... I don't know, I, I guess, I don't know if, if, if percentage is the right way to put it. I mean, how much, how many of the decisions, how much of the control does the religious right really have in the day-to-day -day influence over the Trump administration, not just in the corona response, but, but in general? 
overall, it has a tremendous amount of influence. Um, this is a movement that put Trump in office. He and Mike Pence are always reminding leaders of the movement that they're delivering everything that the movement asked for and more. He's, you know, I go to these sort of marches for life and values voter conferences and all these gatherings of the right. He's always saying, I think I've given you everything you wanted and more. A large piece of that, of course, is judges. To date, Trump has appointed, last I checked about a month ago, about 192 federal judges. That's over 22 percent of the federal judiciary is now a Trump appointee and a lot of the movement's aims are advanced through the courts and some mm -hmm. of the sort of far right wing legal advocacy groups are providing strategy for the movement. I think if you're looking just day to day in the Trump administration, I mean, if you look at, I'm going to direct you to an organization called Capital Ministries. It's run by a fellow named Ralph Drollinger. He's a pastor who targets political leaders at the highest levels of power. It's not, this is not hiding anything. He's got, you can look at his, um, I think, capital sponsors page of his ministry. A, a dozen current and former members of Trump's uh, cabinet are uh, listed as capital sponsors. So multiple people that Trump has appointed to lead the cabinets, like Alex Azar, Betsy DeVos, um, Pence is on there, um, Mike Pompeo is on there, uh, Purdue is on there. These are folks who are sort of on board with a kind of theology that is being taught in this type of ministry. So um, the thing to know about this type of ideology is that, look, you know, when, when you're looking about, when, when people think of the religious right, they're often thinking about those um, culture war issues like abortion, same-sex marriage. But when you look at the, what the, the messages, the leaders, are sending to their political allies that are in power or when they're uh, speaking to their funders for sure they're advocating for a really wide range of policy positions a lot of it is about economic policy about how um, the uh, the bible says supposedly that uh, the government should not be funding essential social services for people directly. Um, some of the right-wing policy groups who thinking about the Family Research Council, have um, their representatives have gone so far as to call things like food assistance and housing assistance, food stamps, against the biblical model or unbiblical. So when you have an ideology, an economic sort of far-right economic ideology that bashes government you're gonna run into trouble when you need a strong centralized response from the federal government. It really doesn't help to have an administration that doesn't believe in a federal government serving the public good and promotes this fiction that all the answers we need are gonna come from the private sector. And then of course the Trump administration appears to be in some instances working overtime to direct any profits or benefits to political cronies. Yeah, yeah. And and the judges thing is very real. I mean, we see that, um, you know, I see that as probably the, the biggest long-term detriment to their involvement, because these are, many of these judgeships are lifetime appointments. Mm -hmm. But now, a lot of the focus has been on how Russia helped Trump get elected. What would you say? Was it Was it Russia or was it the religious right? more which was more influential well, between it, the two in terms of getting him in office the religious right let's just remember has um it consists of like um they, they're the ones who invested in data 
media and messaging. So mm. they have this right-wing propaganda sphere. They have all these for-profit, non-profit organizations. They have all these right-wing policy organizations that work to get out the vote. They have these legal organizations that provide a lot of the kind of, um, a lot of the strategy of the movement. And a lot of the movement operates through, unfortunately, um, right-wing churches. The movement invests very heavily in trying to get all of these uh, pastors for right-wing leaning churches online and then they communicate to them the issues that they should communicate to their congregations in order to turn out the vote for the hyper-conservative right-wing candidates the movement favors. So here's where the culture wars plays in. When they're talking to congregants or when they're talking to the pastors about the issues that they should be talking to about their congregants in order to turn out the vote, it's all abortion all the time. Abortion is like, you know, the number one issue. And then they might talk about same-sex marriage and a homosexual threat and all that kind of stuff. But abortion is like the primary issue. But again, when they're talking, you know, to their political allies, they're advocating for a vast number of policy positions in economic policy, foreign policy, and domestic policy. And that just hits home the fact that this is a right, this is like a, a political movement, not just a stance in the social so-called culture war. Now, um, you know, when it when we're talking about Russia, you know, obviously there's a there are many figures, sort of important figures on the religious right and in the sort of movements that have gone into creating today's religious right have had very friendly relationships with uh, not only um, Russia but other more autocratic countries. So this is why I call this a form of religious nationalism, it's not unique to America. When you see leaders like Putin in Russia or Orban in Hungary, or even like Erdogan in Turkey, ally themselves with conservatives, religious conservatives in their countries in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power. We rightly recognize this as a form of religious nationalism. And that's what we're seeing today with Trump's relationship with our own hyper-conservative religious leaders. Yeah. Is, is there any one organization, like the Family Research Council per se, or, or a group of organizations that are really at the forefront of this, this um, newly empowered movement, uh, or more empowered, I should say? Right, there are a number of really key organizations um, and they all deal with different areas. I'll just give you a couple of names um, and not at all limited to this group, but um, there's a Council for National Policy, there's the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is the kind of legal juggernaut of the religious right. Groups like Focus on the Family and the Family Research Council are some of the leading policy groups. There's an organization like Ralph Reed's Faith and Freedom Coalition, which plays a really substantial role in the sort of right-wing get out the vote machine, um, uh, you just got a whole large number of the, there are like, you know, dozens of movements at the national level that are working to coordinate the hundreds or perhaps even thousands of organizations operating at the local and state level, all of which are sort of working hand in glove to, you know, collaborate on this sort of, um, you know, data initiatives, um, media initiatives, messaging initiatives, pastoral initiatives, um, and kind of uh, working to coordinate this movement. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned how they'll sell, sell the abortion argument to congregants. Right. 
and then actually weigh in on a lot of other policies as well. I, I, I wonder how they rationalize, I guess, from their religious perspective, the uh, the tragic deaths in this corona situation. Do they buy into the argument, as some on the right have, and some Fox News guests have said, that some lives uh, are worth sacrificing and should be sacrificed? Are they is are they on that page too? There, there is an irony here. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, when we talk about abortion, I think we also have to remember uh, another key uh, piece of this, which is that um, this movement has sold us uh, this, lo- this story that their movement was a grassroots reaction to abortion, but it wasn't. One of the key issues that actually animated the movement in its earlier days was the fear that racially segregated academies would be de- deprived of their tax exemptions. So when it, let's look at, like, go a couple of decades back. Um, uh, Jerry Falwell and many of his white Southern conservative pastors were very closely involved with segregated schools and universities. Um, Bob Jones Sr. was, um, he, he's, he called um, segregation God's established order. And uh, he referred to de- uh, desegregationists as satanic propagandists. Um, and so he's, th- they thought they had the right not just to segregate people on the basis of skin color, but also to receive federal money for the purpose. And they were really afraid the Supreme Court was going to end their tax exemptions. But they were trying to, at this time, sort of inspire broad-based, hyper-conservative counter-revolution. So they got together. There's this incident where they got together and sort of went down the list of the issues that they thought could animate their movement. And they thought, um, you know, trying to defend uh, racism might not be uh, good messaging for them. So they kind of went down the list, looked at the ERA, but it was kind of going down in flames already. And then over time, they decided that that abortion was like, huh, they're like, huh, that could work. You know, that was an issue that seemed to draw on people's anxieties about gender issues, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like a sort of, who doesn't want to defend babies, right? So the Republican Party, most Republicans, um, Protestants at one time supported abortion law liberalization, but over time they purged those voices from the Republican Party. And and that today, like the sort of pro-life religion that we see today, which of course is, you know, pro-life when it wants to be, not when it doesn't, um, it's really a modern creation, and it was created for political purposes. So there's other ways in which that sort of pro-life culture uh, cherry picks the, the value. So it, it's interesting to me that they are always, I mean, I think one of the ways to establish successful, happy families is that families have control over um, uh, when and when to have children, whether to have children, um, family planning, broadly speaking, that is one of the tools that makes it possible to create successful families. And yet, you know, this is a movement that claims to be pro-family, and yet they seek to often undermine the tools, um, such as various forms of public assistance and family planning that make it possible to have um, successful families. So there are a lot of ways in which there's that kind of, um, you know, double standard. Well, but but I think there I think they would say their family planning is something that 
just men should be doing. You know, we should be deciding <laughs> when women are to have children and have as many as we desire, you know, kind of like, it's, it's almost like taking us back to the 1950s or something like that. Yes. So, you know, it, 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 that really seems to be what they're promoting. But now, let, let me ask this. You, you've written in your book, uh, Power Worshippers, and folks, please get the book, um, especially now as we're home and we have time to read. Um, the influence they had on the 2016 campaign, the data, the ads, Tell us a little bit, a bit more about just how influential they were money-wise in terms of making that happen for him. And, and can you give us a preview as to what they're doing, ramping up for November 2020? Oh boy, so much to talk about here. I, um, okay. There's a quote. So I, in, when I researched this book, The Power Worshippers, I spent a decade going to these right-wing um, strategy meetings and gather activist gatherings and interviewing leaders of the movement about all these issues. And there's a moment where um, uh, Ralph Reed, who's the head of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, he uh, was speaking in advance of 2010 about the resources his group was going to bring to bear on the 2016 election. It was one of the real sort of stunning moments for me. He said, he, he spoke about the amounts of money. I can't remember how many millions of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. It was like some unbelievable sum of money that his group was going to bring to bear on turning out the vote for Trump. And he also said, you know, he was talking about the number of um, some, you know, huge number of thousands of um, uh, paid staff, volunteers, how they were going to target people's cell phones with messages, how they were going to have phone calling. And if people hadn't, you know, turned out to vote by, you know, 10 a.m., they were going to like, by 4 p.m., they were going to drive to their houses and offer to take them. So, and they were especially focused on, on swing districts. So the movement is really very strategic in this way, not too long ago. Um, and they also know they turn out people to vote in disproportionate numbers. That's how they went. Let's remember, in a country where only 40, you know, like 40 to 50% of people don't bother to turn out to vote, it doesn't take a majority of the country to win elections. All it takes is a really coordinated, organized minority of groups. So Ralph Reed said not too long ago, something to the effect of it doesn't, don't pay attention to the polls. It doesn't matter what percentage of the population we are, that percentage is declining. All that matters is who turns out on election day. And he pointed out that the sort of people who are the most sort of devoted members of this group, they call them sage cons. It's sort of a, a sort of term of art that they have for the most devoted members of this movement that, you know, they, they turn out to vote 90%. And they also are really active in turning out other people to vote. So people often ask me, you know, is there hope? Of course there is hope. I mean, I'm seeing a lot more activism than I did um, uh, in advance of the 2016 election, you know, uh, for those who oppose the politics of division and conquest that right. this movement represents. And um, really turning out the vote is key. If everybody just do one level up of what they did last time, I think we could actually have some success. Yeah, uh, that, that's very interesting. Uh, lastly, our... Are, are they, they seem not to be bothered by Trump's own 
contradictions when it comes to religion and faith? I mean, does he even go to church? Has he ever gone to church regularly? Um, the, the charges of of infidelity to sexual assault. I mean, so many, so many things. I, I guess they just. I mean, I know they believe he was. They do believe, don't they, that he was some kind of gift from God, and he's ordained by God Almighty. Yet he's got all these other um, um, failings. Uh, so they're okay with that. They just ignore that or, or what? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, some people think that, you know, he's going to appoint justices favorable to their concerns or economic policies favorable to the pocketbooks of the movement, sort of wealthy funders. But let's not overlook something else that's really important. The support for Trump was not entirely transactional. And while it's true they got a part of the deal they were looking for, you cannot explain the tenacity of the movement and the hyper-loyalty of their support on purely transactional terms. There's something about Trump's style of politics that speaks to this group, and it's tribal politics, authoritarian politics, the idea that there's an insider in society tying the idea of America to specific religious and ethnic and cultural identities and outsiders, which is everybody else. Um, and so, look, this is a movement that doesn't believe in representative democracy. It engages in race-based gerrymandering and strategic um, you know, voter suppression. Um, movement leaders have for a long time articulated the idea that they don't want everybody to vote. As Paul Weirich said, our influence in elections goes uh, up as the numbers of people who vote go down. So they don't really believe broadly in representative democracy. They want a sort of, you know, you would, they seem to long for the hard hand of a despot. And if you want a more sort of authoritarian, sort of despotic form of power, you don't want the nice guy. You want the kind of um, tough guy who's gonna, you know, break the rules and crack heads right. as long as those heads belong to your, you know, supposed enemies. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I confess to you, for someone like me who is uh, in the ministry, um, they they make it tough for um, those of us um, who don't follow that type of, uh, of of approach. You know, they they have a way, interesting enough, of of demonizing the reputation of those who feel that as Christians uh, that you know, Jesus would have supported social programs, you know, and of course everybody has a right to be atheist and agnostic, but I've encountered people quite frankly, Catherine, who say, well, why are you a Christian when Christianity is A, B, C, and D and the A, B, C, and D, they relate to Christianity is what the religious right is doing. And after my people say, whoa, whoa, they don't represent <laughs> the whole faith. But yet I understand people who challenge the faith now because they're so loud. You know, they have such a loud voice and they overshadow others who are trying to do good uh, and are trying to be, you know, uh, compassionate and empathetic and, and careful toward families and essential workers and frontline workers in this pandemic. So they, they make those of us who are trying to be a little more genuine, um, uh, it make our job a little bit a little bit tougher, you know? Progressive religious voices are more important now than they've ever been. And the movement reserves some of its most poisonous words 
for those who dare to identify as Christians of a different sort. But here's the thing, I think most American Christians um, understand Christianity as ha having something to do with loving our neighbors and yeah. caring for the poor and the least of these. But um, in a way, it seems to me that the movement has, in, uh, you know, really in, in some ways betrayed what might have been its strongest suit. Um, it's allied itself with this sort of, uh, frankly, selfish uh, libertarian uh, sort of economic policies that argue that we don't know anybody anything. And so there are many um, progressive Christians, as you know, who question whether the movement is uh, particularly Christian to begin with. And you're also, of course, very aware that there have always, you know, there's so much diversity within every religion. Um, and that um, there's always been this sort of dispute about politics. I think a lot of the current religious sort of nationalism that we're seeing today in our politics is a reaction to the sort of um, um, the movement of progressive Christians that was kind of um, becoming accepted in the mid-century. And uh, they sort of wanted to push back on that. Yeah, yeah. Catherine Stewart, folks, her latest, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, available everywhere. And obviously, they're going to be up to a lot more between now and November. So, Catherine, we may need to uh, uh, keep you close at hand uh, for your analysis of what else may be going on. And I know you're going to keep uh, writing as well, aren't you? Absolutely. This is, uh, yeah. this is my beat. <laughs> yeah. You know, religion, politics, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Perfect. Spot. Well, we're, we're thankful that it is your beat and you're doing a great job covering it, okay? Thank you so much. It's great to speak with you today. Likewise, and you and your family continue to stay well and protected, okay? And we'll talk again soon. All right, take care now. Folks, check out the Power Worshippers now inside the religious, inside the dangerous rise of religious nationalism, the Power Worshippers. All right, thanks again, Catherine. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.